Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. I still love to spend time poring over travel magazines and maybe even ripping out a page here and there. But the days when a publication only had to worry about that monthly physical product are long gone. There are still subscribers and ad revenues to consider for those who work in print, but also search engine results, mobile optimized content, video content, branded content, and a whole universe of social media platforms. On this episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about the changing role of travel media, how publications are adapting to shifting consumer habits, and what that means to the travel industry as a whole. Joining us in the Skift office today are Nathan Lump, editor of Travel and Leisure, and Pavia Rosati, founder and CEO of the travel website Fathom. They're here with me, podcast host Hannah Sampson, and Skift co-founder and head of content Jason Clampett. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Most most media today uh, is in a state of reinvention. Magazines are changing. Consumer websites are evolving or disappearing. First part of the question is, how are you seeing the landscape for travel media change? And how is your own publication adapting? And, and you represent very different um, travel media outlets. So, um, Pavia, why don't you go first and then Nathan? Well... Um, the travel landscape to a certain extent has changed less for me than it has for travel and leisure because Fathom began as a website. And so we launched just under five years ago. Um, and at that point I had had, at that point I was a digital dinosaur because I've been building and working in websites for a very long time. Um, so internet 1.0, internet 2.0 had come and gone. And so what we did when we launched Fathom, I launched Fathom with my co-founder and former colleague from Daily Candy, Gerilyn Gerba. We, I should say, I never had any interest in running a business or in launching a website. But what I did have an interest in was finding a travel website that solved my problems as a traveler. Because at the time, the landscape was filled with travel websites. Because by the way, I stopped counting in 2010 when there were 13,000 of them. The landscape was filled with a few extremes. One was the Hotels.com model or the Yelp model, which is we will tell you everything and give you everything you could possibly need and list everything either through user-generated content or objective or just fact-filled reviews. The other extreme was, hey, I'm Mindy. I decided with my boyfriend that I was going to travel the world and here's my story. So there was sort of the super personal blogger on the other extreme. And while there were a lot of websites that were good at giving me everything, at, for instance, telling me the cheapest plane ticket from London to Beirut, true case, there was no website that told me once I get to Beirut, where should I stay? And once I'm in Beirut, do I go to Syria or Jordan? And this happened to me in 2009. And I started to think about, okay, what would the travel website that I wanted selfishly as a traveler to look like, look like? And that's what we set out to build with Fathom. That isn't your landscape question, but to a certain extent, we really didn't stop, we didn't stop to think about where do we fit in the landscape. We looked at it more like we don't like the landscape. So let's do something that looks like we want it to look, which is fraught with its own perils. Um, but thanks for laughing, Jason. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do know that we fit in an ecosystem and the fact that we're not 
easy to pigeonhole into where a Yelp or where a Jamie blogger um, makes it at once better and mostly harder to keep doing what it is that we're doing. So Nathan, you weren't new to the ecosystem, but you've obviously experienced a lot of changes. So um, how would you talk about how travel and leisure has been evolving? Yeah, I mean, you know, the changes over the past, I would say, particularly last five years have been really dramatic. Um, you know, I, I actually worked at Travel and Leisure earlier in my career. Um, I was at TNL from 2000 to 2006. Um, then I left and went off and did other things, a lot of them mostly digital. Um, and then I came back in, in, in uh, late 2014 to, to, to run the brand. And, you know, I think you know, Travel and Leisure is a 40-plus-year-old brand, um, most of which was, um, you know, rooted in print. Um, and then, frankly, you know, uh, when I worked at TNL from 2000 to 2006, I mean, we had a website. It it was there, and it was run by people. Um, but it was <laughs> totally separate. Um, it was, um, I would say, I think fair to say, an afterthought um, as a business um, and as an editorial product. Um you know, fast forward to coming back in 2014, obviously, you know, print is still a really um, vital part of our business and still actually a really effective engagement tool. And actually our, you know, our audience in print is larger than it's ever been in our history, um, which I think says something about the resilience of um, of print in this category. Um, you know, that there is, um, there is some value that people still uh, attach to a more leisurely, um, uh, less uh, perhaps information-driven or tactical um, engagement with content in the travel space. Um, but obviously digital is where um, we are as a business growing the most, where our audience is growing the most. Um, and so, um, you know, brands like ours have had to really transition from being focused, as you say, on that sort of monthly physical print product to being really focused on what is essentially 24-7 publishing. Um, that has serious implications for your content strategy. It has massive implications for your operation. Um, a lot of what I did um, when I joined the brand um, was to um, really address that, to basically change our operation, change our strategy, change pretty much everything about the way we worked to allow us to actually be an effective digital publisher um, because I didn't think we were there. Um, and so, you know, that's been a, that's been a huge shift. And I think actually, you know, and for, for anyone who's operating in this landscape, who does have both a print and a digital product, you have to think about your brand holistically across both print and digital and social and all of the other wonderful things that we have at our disposal these days. What are the, speaking of that, what are the metrics of success now? You know, in the past it was, um, even digitally, it was just page views and then people realized to how to create slideshows and how to uh, <laughs> how to jack up page views and in the past it was newsstand sales and even the association of magazine mm -hmm. media now does that 360 view yeah. where they look at these things um uh, you know how do you how do you judge your your success and reach on a daily basis well i mean on my end at least i think there are there are two things i mean fundamentally, obviously, you know, we're part of Time Inc. We're a public company. Um, and profit is fundamentally our number one success metric. Um, you know, my job in part is to is to run a profitable business. Um, on the sort of editorial success metric side of things, you know, what that um, translates into is a number of a number of different things. But obviously, we're looking at um, audience growth. 
um, and engagement of that audience um, as, as as kind of our two um, our two key metrics. And then on a more granular level, we're looking at specific areas of business opportunity and of engagement opportunity within that, like video, for instance, which is a massive, um, relatively new priority for us. Um, because um, there's a lot of opportunity there, both to engage audience, but also to um, but also to make money. Well, Fathom is not a 40 year business. Um, Fathom is still very much a startup. So metric number one is, can I keep the lights on this month and can we keep going? Um, Fathom is competing in a space of clickbait driven 15 things you must see before you die. And I mean, shoot me before you ever see that headline anywhere near my pages. <laughs> By the way, um, it performs really well though. It, I don't, you know what, which is a really interesting point, but shoot me, shoot me because I won't be able to look at myself in the mirror and be proud of what I'm doing if I'm reducing our really good content to that garbage because it's garbage. I have never seen anything in my inbox that says must, that's actually anywhere remotely near, could be interesting if you were very bored, the things that get labeled must. So, um, wheeling back in from my rant over there, <laughs> we are looking a lot more at engagement, as Nathan said. I mean, that's what we really care about. And the other things are, the other things for us are softer. I mean, I travel a lot and I'm delighted when I find myself in a remote corner of Chile in an amazing hotel and the GM comes out and says, you're with Fathom. It's my favorite travel website. Or if I'm, you know, I was on a press trip in Bhutan and there were journalists from Singapore, Australia, Condé Nast Traveler, India, every one of them knew Fathom. And one of the editors was said, said, you know, I planned my trip to my, I planned my Italian honeymoon exclusively using your site. I didn't know we were that. I mean, I don't really know these things. We're a tiny team. We don't have a huge marketing budget. We are, um, so those softer numbers, because we're such a personal operation, you know, we're not Walmart, we're a small boutique in the West Village, right? We are really driven by these very high touch moments of engagement that we can actually measure on a personal level. And the, I mean, and how do you, how does the, how do you monetize that? Oh, so you for said God's <laughs> Come on. I and mean, you said profit is the most important, but I assume that the, still the biggest pot of money is coming from print. Um, or, or am I assuming wrong? I'm thinking like an old newspaper person here. Um, we still, um, print is still core for our business, but digital, um, uh, is growing faster. And so therefore, um, becomes more and more important every day. Um, we, um, You're, you just had timing earnings just came out yesterday, right? Or the day before. Yeah. And digital is driving our, yeah. And digital is absolutely driving the company's, um, the company's growth and our, um, and our improvement, um, on the fiscal side. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, digital is obviously where, particularly if you're looking at advertising revenue, um, and in the travel space, um, and we're not, obviously not all of our advertising partners are in the travel space, but it's a significant chunk of, of, of who we, um, of who we work with and, you know, travel advertising has, has very, um, significantly migrated, um, to digital. So, um, that's where certainly a lot of the, yeah, where a lot of the opportunity is and our, and our core business model is still monetizing the eyeballs of our audience, um, uh, whether that is in print or, um, or in digital. Although, you know, increasingly we do other things as well. You guys um, may know we launched a, a product called Travel and Leisure Journeys last year, um, where we're now selling travel, um, uh, to our audience. And so that is a, um, a new revenue stream for us. Um, also, you know, I think 
an interesting service for our audience. But um, so we're and we're continuing to experiment with things like that. I'm happy to talk about money if you want to talk about money. <laughs> talk more about money. No, I mean Thank I you. didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean to blow off that question. Um, uh, it's it's challenging though. I mean, it's really challenging. We don't. Uh, but the but the things that have been most successful for us, and the challenge with where the advertising model is going in terms of digital spend is, um, Gucci can't know exactly how many people will see that double page spread that they've paid for in travel and leisure. They will know how many people saw and clicked on the 970 by 250 banner on your homepage. It's a very, very different way of spending money for Gucci. And so they are, the fact that they're able to measure in such a granular way online makes it a lot harder to make the big sales of like, oh, but no, it's great branding. It's wonderful presence. Look how beautiful it is that print used to be able to do. And I'm sure, Nathan, you can speak to this much more than but I can. But also makes it more challenging for digital publishers because oh, the expectations sure. are so high. Super high. If you don't have 40 million eyeballs on that Very ad. high. And also, well, how come nobody clicked on that banner yeah. ad? And you want to say, well, because <laughs> it's a banner ad. Dead. Would you Would you click on that banner ad? Um, I mean... But what we have been really successful at doing is partnering with companies to create travel content. And that's been, that's always been something that's been very appealing to us from the beginning when we started, um, when we started Fathom, we said, we want this to be a, a website where passionate travelers can find the companies that they have an interest in and where those companies can find those travelers. And that's not just airlines and hotels because travel, I mean, I think a great shirt is an essential travel thing. I think a wonderful moisturizer is a travel product also. A novel is a travel product. A camera certainly is. So we see travel very much as part of how people think about life um, as opposed to travel is the thing I do for the two weeks when I'm not sitting in a cubicle. So those partnerships with companies like Kate Spade, with Qantas, um, we're doing something that I really am having a great time with, with Discover. Um, I was an American Express Platinum Card ambassador last year. That was pretty fun. But wherein um, these have been some of the more successful and fruitful ways for us to work with brands, much more successful for us and I think for the companies um, than, say, banner ads. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you guys... um wanted to talk at some point about branded content. Um, Let's do it now. And, um, uh, you know, I, I spent a few years actually embedded in that world um, when I left publishing and worked in advertising. And yeah, it, um, at Travel and Leisure, it's the same thing. We've, um, you know, that's a that's also a, an increasingly important part of our business model. Um, uh, our partners increasingly turn to us as um, uh, content creators for them um, work with us as a, as a partner in that way. Um, often tied to a, to a distribution plan, um, that involves a media buy, but not always. Um, uh, we, we do more and more of, um, we do more and more of the kinds of deals where we're, we're a production partner really, um, for our clients, particularly in the video space. Um, and that's, um, so that's also been, yeah, a, a, an evolution of our, of our business and how we, and how we work with the team. Because as, you know, as, as we know, you know, in travel, um, storytelling is been at the root of what we've always done editorially and it works. Um, and so it stands to reason that our, our partners would embrace that as a, as, as a model, as a marketing model for them. I think it makes a lot of sense in travel, um, perhaps more sense in travel than almost any other industry you can think of. So that gets into though, the, 
old notions of church and state, and I can't believe I actually said old notions of church Mm. and state, but the divisions are becoming increasingly cloudy. And I think, so on the editorial side, you have editors who are saying, no, no, I don't want to know who's paying for anything. I just want to do in a very pure way what I'm doing. But that's a little bit artificial because how do you not have some sort of sense of who's paying for the bills? Um, Fashion is just as cloudy if we think about fashion media. So, um, and on the consumer end, I'm often, I'm not often shocked it continually happens that consumers don't know the difference and don't really care where the information is coming from. So the consumer, so if the consumer doesn't know whether it is 100% pure journalism and what the listeners can't hear is my air, air quotes. quotes around that, um, or whether it is, you know, nudged by somebody who has an interest in showcasing their beautiful hotel room on the Amalfi coast. If all the reader wants to get to is a beautiful hotel room on the Amalfi coast, what does it matter? I don't have an answer to this, by the way. I'm hoping Nathan does. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, we, um, I'm very comfortable in the gray areas, um, given how long I've, I, I've, I've lived in them. Um, but, um, you know, and we, we basically at, at timing the way our evolution has, um, has gone is that, you know, historically, you know, cause it, it, brands like ours have always in some ways created branded content for our clients. I mean, um, the traditional advertorial or special section um, model in print is exactly that, yeah. um, especially in travel. Um, travel's yeah. been doing yeah. travel's been doing it lo- you know, more than anybody lives. else. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, historically, that work was always done by um, folks in our marketing teams, um, and and they still do that work um, for our clients. Um, you know what? And the way it works, the way it works, but the way that it's evolved in our company is that um, so when a client comes to us and they want, they just want content and they want it to be their content, fully theirs, fully owned by them, distributed however they want, et cetera. Um, then that still is a, is a, is a marketing creative services function, um, in, in our organization. But when they come to us as they increasingly do, and they would like to have co-branded content, um, uh, what many people will call native content. Um, so co-branded with the partner and with travel and leisure, then we now help them make that, um, editorially. Um, and that's, um, something my team gets involved in and they work on those projects with, um, you know, with our clients, they don't own the client relationship, um, but they're involved in doing that work. Um, you know, from my perspective, if we're going to be distributing that content, um, the better it is, the better experience our audience is going to have. Um, and fundamentally for me, that's the, that's the win-win there. Um, and so, I'm all for doing what I can to make sure that um, that stuff that we make or that our partners make or are involved in making is as good as it possibly can be. Um, and that's the role that I think we play in that process. Do you come up for like a new label for that if it's not special advertising section? Is it mm. like co-branded content? Yeah, we um, we internally we call it native content. Um, uh, you know, native advertising, native um, gets used in a lot of different ways, as we, obviously as we know in marketing. Um, but um, we call it native content. Um, it's still largely not a um, it, not to say that it never happens in print, but it's still that's still largely a digital thing um, for us. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a dominant model for for our branded content business. Um, uh, in the, on the digital side, print is um, still a little bit, slightly more traditional in most of the executions. When, when you think of your competitive sets, um, I know when we talked shortly after you announced your your redesign of everything, um, you mentioned that your competitive set was Netflix and HBO and and uh, newspapers and things like that. Um, 
is that is that still something that you both of you consider when you when you when you when you do think about you know who am i up against today who am i competing against what's your what kind of keeps you up at night with that well, everything keeps me up at night, but Netflix, well, not Netflix, Netflix puts me to sleep, which is really nice. I have, I have, I have a very lovely relationship with Netflix when it comes to going to bed at night. Um, I don't consider Netflix to be my competitor. If we want to think about um, the limited bandwidth that people have to think about anything when they're not thinking about their job and their family. What else do people think? I don't even know. What do people, whatever people think about. Great B2B travel content. Well, so yeah. So um, if we consider there is a finite number of hours in a day for you to do your leisure pursuits and then leisure pursuits are flipping through magazines and taking a walk and going to the gym and whatever these leisure pursuits are, then perhaps yes. Um, then maybe Netflix, although I've never considered it in quite that way. I think of, if, if Fathom is the brand that people go to to help them figure out how to spend their free time, if Fathom is the place where they go to find the vacation things they're going to be dreaming about long after they've come home, then my competitive set, which is what my mission is, my competitive set is not Netflix in quite the same way. My competitive set is travel and leisure. My competitive set is the New York Times. It is... Um, TripAdvisor, I, I guess, to a certain extent, um, although I have very particular feelings about those kinds of sites um, that I hope we can get into. Um, I think what I, I don't feel like we're super competitive with very personal blogs because Fathom does have a point of view and Fathom is very filtered in the approach that it takes. We don't want to tell you everything. We only want to tell you some stuff. Um, so I think that the websites and the travel companies that think about how will we find the things that are very good quality? And I don't want to use words like luxury. I don't want to use words like expensive because I'm not interested in those words because I don't think that's what travel's about. Um, that's who I think of as our competitive sets. I think of whose opinion can I trust? Whose opinion do a lot of other people trust? That's who Fathom's competitive set is. Yeah, I mean, I from my perspective... I think there's, I see it kind of two ways. I mean, it's, I guess it's not dissimilar to what Poppy was saying. Like, I think there's our core competitive set, which is other people who do travel content um, and um, that do something within that space that overlaps with what we do, um, which is everything from Fathom to um, other magazines and newspapers who do travel content to TripAdvisor um, and anyone, you know, in, in that space. Um, you know, I do believe, though, I, I fundamentally believe that as content providers, we are competitive with anyone who takes any, our audience's attention minutes. Um, and so I do think, and I, and, I, and I say that mostly because I think what it, what it means is that we have to strive, I think, harder than we ever have before to do things that are compelling and that grab people's attention. Um, particularly in a, in a category like travel, you know, um, you know, because I think that travel is, you know, we know that we have a passionate enthusiast kind of audience, people who kind of always live in a state of travel planning, basically. But when you think about um, how many of those people there are, there are a lot of them, but there aren't 20 million of them probably in the, in the U.S., um, and so if you want to have a business at any kind of scale, you have to think about, well, how do you also get the attention of people who are not constantly thinking about travel um, and, um, you know, who are interested in travel and do travel, but are not necessarily the people who have it on the brain all the time. 
Um, and, you know, for those people, and when you think about what, even just thinking about other content categories, like, let's say beauty as an example. Um, if I'm a woman and I wear makeup every day, then that means I think about beauty every day to some extent. Every day it crosses my mind. Lipstick crosses my mind. Um, if I'm not someone who is constantly living in a state of travel planning, then travel does not necessarily naturally cross my mind every day. And so we have to work very hard to, um, to make sure that that does. Um, that's a, you know, a huge part of particularly in social of, of the, the kind of brief that I give my team is, you know, you know, is, um, is creating desire, um, creating desire, creating, um, a reason for people to think about travel or to think about place or to think about escape or experience or whatever it is that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get them to engage with at a given moment. Um, and in that sense, I do think we're competing with the, we're competing with the, you know, the, uh, talking points memo story about Donald Trump that is next to us in your Facebook feed. Um, is our headline more compelling? Is our proposition for that piece of content more compelling than that? Um, needs to be because that person may only have five minutes. They'll either give it to us or they'll give it to them. So that's sort of how I look at it. What do you think, both of you, as your role, as travel media's role, um, when there is so much competition for my time. So like, I think that my inspiration might come from a random Instagram mm. post or something or some Pinterest alert that I get. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily even have to come from, from news or from a feed, um, on Facebook. So, and then when you think about social media, you also think about like the influencers who are the ones who are also trying to create that desire. So where, where do you fit and, and how are you, um, trying to make sure that you fit in that whole landscape. You know, a couple of years ago, the big trend in startups, and I'm sure that Jason can um, roll his eyes at this too. Um, the big trend in startup was um, social travel websites where your <laughs> friends were going to plan a trip for you. Right? Oh, yeah. Crazy, right? I've heard Jason laugh at that. <laughs> the, the Facebook of travel. Oh, basically. Or the Pinterest of travel or whatever it was going to be. What and was so, the big one called? I'm trying to remember what the one that, that one Was that it really Wander? Is, is Wander the one that... Started up, but never wonder, launched. Wonder, trippy, a lot trippy. of things. A lot of things with trip or trav in the name. Okay, so um, and I got a lot of questions because Fathom had launched. Like, this is what you should do, and I was like, mm, I don't think so because my friends are too busy to plan my trips, and maybe my <laughs> friends have time to say, oh yeah, well, once when I was in Bali, I ate this really great meal at a fish restaurant around the corner from my hotel. Now that may be a point of inspiration, but that's not going to help you plan your trip. And so the Instagram photo that makes me wish I was on a beach or that makes me wish I was having that spectacular meal in Bali, that's where it begins. But then actually planning a trip is hard. Planning a trip is hard. Traveling is wonderful and planning a trip sucks. And so how do we make that easy? That's what we want to do. How do we take the guesswork out of, I want to go to there and I want to have that wonderfulness and I want to have those photos in my Instagram feed to make my friends at home jealous. But um, actually, uh, how do I get to the Amalfi Coast? Should I go to Naples? Do I go to Rome? Do I take a train? Do I do blah, 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 blah? Um, so I see that these in influencers, again, the air quotes around these words that get bandied about that are just so empty. Um, 
that's, you know what? That's great. It gets you excited and that's wonderful. But there's a huge gap between some chick's picture and your successful trip. And so I see my role, and I won't speak for Nathan, but I use his magazine for a lot of these same things also, as making it easy for me to make these experiences happen and making it easy for, and, and I want to make it easy for you to have that experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I would basically agree. I mean, I think, look, I think do influencers, quote unquote, do they matter? I think so, yeah, for sure. I think we all we all get inspiration from people who we, both people we know and people we don't know um, who we follow in social. One of the things I love about Instagram is that most of the people I follow are not even people I've ever met. Um, and I think that's fun. Um, but, um, and do I learn things from them? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I use, I use social as a content discovery tool as I think, as I think everyone does. I use it as a research tool. It's quite, quite interesting actually to mine, um, social for, um, trends or for where people are actually going. That's one of the ways I use Instagram actually is to kind of see like where are people at any given moment in time because people share when they travel. Nicaragua. Um, and everyone's in Nicaragua. There was a moment like, you know, yeah, a couple like, months ago, yeah, everyone, yeah. myself included, was yeah. in Nicaragua. Yeah. Yes. No, it's, 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 <laughs> so in that sense, it's really interesting and, 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 and useful. I do, you know, to me, I think there are a couple things that you know, so on the one hand, everything Pavia was saying, I think, you know, being a, you know, more of a full service partner to our audience in a way that an influencer is not going to be, um, is an important role. Um, I think having, you know, a certain amount of authority, you know, um, we do actually still put a lot of due diligence into our content creation. And, um, I think, um, our relationship with our audience, um, indicates that people understand that and believe that about us. Um, and so that is something I don't take lightly, but also I think it's an, it's an opportunity for us in, in, in this kind of world. But I also think one of the important roles that I see for us is in, um, you know, I think when you look at the influencer you know, these sort of tribes of influencers, there is a certain kind of echo chamber that happens in these communities where um, everyone ends up in the same places at the same time Nicaragua. in many cases. So, you know, back when I was in college, um, I worked um, I worked at, at Let's Go, the travel guidebooks um, produced by Harvard students. And, um, you know, Let's Go was an amazing organization. It's where I got my start in travel. And, um, you know, but we used to joke about it at Let's Go that, you know, when you'd go to like a cafe that was recommended in Let's Go and, you know, in France, you'd, you'd show up in that cafe and you'd be surrounded by a bunch of their kids from America, basically, because everybody was using the same thing and going to the same place. And I feel like, I actually feel like if you were, if you were to actually follow, if you were to say like, I'm going to do what, um, you know, X influencer did on their trip to Japan, you would find yourself in places in Japan where you're surrounded by a lot of people who are, you follow on Instagram. Um, and, you know, and so I think that we have an important role also in helping people to get outside of that um, and to experience things that they might not otherwise find um, that are the places where um, they're not necessarily going to be surrounded by that tribe of global nomads. Um, I think our audience hungers for that. Um, you know, they may, they may want to be at that bar, but then they want to go to dinner at the place that's, um, you know, uh, more of a find. Um, so, you know, I and I think, so I think that's a, that's a role that we can play in, in, in this, in this universe as well. Do you, what's, what's the role now? You spoke of influencers, but I think of user generated content. You mentioned mm -hmm. TripAdvisor earlier. I know a few years ago, people thought of user reviews as a way to gain scale quickly. You get more content, you get it faster, you get tons of more reviews. And it seems as if there's been a gradual pullback from that, uh, a recognition that from trusted brands, people want 
their advice as opposed to random strangers who they're just pulling in. Um, do you think that's accurate? Or do you think I'm fooling myself with, with that? Fooling, your, fooling yourself about what? With, with the belief that people want more expert content from travel brands. I mean, if I can just use myself as a focus group of one, do I want to go where some random person who I've never even heard of and don't know anything about thinks that I should go and spend my money? Or do I want to go someplace where somebody whose taste I trust and whose opinion I think matters tells me I should be going? I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm hugely old fashioned about this. I think, I think user generated content has a place, but I think it's only one data point and I don't think it's the most important data point. I think the most important data point is what does somebody who knows about something think about it? That's what I want to hear from first. I love that Donald Trump is ranting like a lunatic, but man knows nothing about politics. Just because like he, Donald Trump is user generated content on the political scale. <laughs> he, he is. And I would much rather hear from somebody who's actually had the challenge of trying to get a law made and trying to get a bill passed and trying to manage a large governmental budget and hear from that person about how we should be solving our problems, not from, not from somebody with a good soundbite. I think it's both, Jason. I mean, I think on the, and I, I think that's a, it's a compelling point of view, Pavia. I think it's like, you know, I think, look, the UGC matters for sure. I mean, TripAdvisor wouldn't be by far the number one um, website in the travel space if it didn't. But I agree. I think it's a data point. Obviously, when, you know, I mean, there's lots of data to support that the average person, you know, whatever, I forget what the statistic is now, but the average person planning a trip goes to at least 15 different websites. Um, the number of people who go to 20 plus is, is, is significant. So, you know, um, so it is, I think, one data point of many data points, but it is one that pretty much everybody's using. Um, because their numbers wouldn't be what they are if that wasn't the case. So you know the the fact is, and it's it's it, it is worth noting. I think that you know if you say of those fifteen sites, you know some of the people who are planning their trip are going to go to Fathom, some of them are going to go to TNL, um, some of them are going to go to other places. But every single one of those people basically is going to TripAdvisor. So um, that's partially because they own that space. They really they've they've owned it like nobody else. They don't really have significant competition in that space. Um, but everybody complains about it. I don't think anybody says they love their TripAdvisor experience. Um, you know, and I think what I hear a lot from people all the time is that they are interested in the opinions of other travelers, but they want, they're interested in the opinions of people like me. Um, yeah. And that's hard to find on TripAdvisor. It's not impossible, but it's, it's, it's hard to find. And, you know, I think there's opportunity in the, in the travel space to, to address that. One of the things we've done in terms of user-generated content on Fathom is invite readers to share their stories with us. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm a digital dinosaur. So I've seen what usually gets posted on message boards and the kind of feedback. And so we, we always hope for the best, but it's not as though we were expecting the beautifully written literary video, high quality photographs that we've ended up getting. And some of the people who just reached out to us because they were like, Hey, I want to tell a story about my trip in Botswana or in India or in Indiana, wherever it was, we've, we've created so much of the content that's on Fathom has come from people who are just responding to what we're doing and sharing their stories with us. So in that sense, user-generated content that is self-filtered, I suppose, is what's happening. And to Nathan's point, like it would be great if I could find a trip advisor where my friends and people like me were posting, 
I just find that that type of that that those people aren't typically posting in that way. I mean, we I mean, we um, you know we've been doing user reviews and ratings for more than twenty years um, as part of our annual World's Best Awards, and it's one of our you know it's probably our single most popular feature that we do all year online and in print. And you know what was interesting to me that I discovered you know, not that long ago, we've always been harnessing these user ratings, but we also have verbatims from hundreds of thousands of people um, that they've elected to share with us. We were just never publishing them. Um, um, so that'll change. Um, but, you know, and I think that's a really, then suddenly that's a really interesting subset of, you the, can take on of the 60 million people at TripAdvisor. You know, I've got, let's say 200,000 of, of, of people who are the TNL audience, um, which I think is potentially powerful. Nathan, and I'll, I'll ask this question to both of you, actually, Pavia. Um, when it comes to planning coverage and thinking about the stories that you're doing, how aware or how cautious are you about current events? Or, I mean, you have to be thinking about like future events. Um, I saw, Nathan, that you wrote an editor's note in March uh, explaining that you had sent off the May Europe issue to the printers, and then a couple of weeks later, the Brussels attacks happened. Um, so how much does that unknown weigh on the decision-making that you're doing when you're thinking about editorial coverage? And Pavia, you're not really like doing so much news, but how do you think about what's going on in the world when you're um, thinking about what you're going to write about? I mean, it's hugely important and it's particularly challenging for print as you would expect. Um, you know, we closed the print issue three months before anybody sees it. Um, or when I say close, I mean ship it to the printers for those who um, who don't work in publishing. And um, and we plan our issues as much as a year in advance, um, at least some of the content, not all of it, but some of it. Um, so, you know, we have to think very, very carefully about not just world events, but also just what is going to be long tail in terms of content. What is content that's going to be relevant a year from now? It's a very particular art. Um, um, it, um, but I think, yeah, we, we pay, we pay really close attention. I mean, that said, I think, you know, I feel very fortunate, um, at TNL, that we have an audience, and this is true of, of, of Pavi's audience at Fathom too. I would I would imagine, you know, we have an audience of people who are serious travelers, serious, passionate travelers. The kind of people who, um, yeah, they might change their plans, but they're not the kind of people who stop traveling. Um, and they're going to change their plans if there's like a legit reason to change their plans. Um, you know, not that they're just a little bit, you know, a little bit concerned about what might happen. Um, you know, we we survey our audience all the time about these things. Um, you know, and they tell us that, you know, all of the data that we get back from them tells us that they're quite resilient, um, in terms of, you know, in terms of their plans. I also think it's really important for us to engage with the issues of the world. Travelers are exposed to these things, you know, and in that May issue, for instance, we did a big package of content about the refugee crisis in Europe, which I think was really important for us to address. Um, is isn't necessarily something that travelers are going to be confronted with, but if you're spending time in Europe, like that's the dominant issue, um, of the day in, in, in many countries. And so, it's important to be informed about that. So we try to address those things, um, you know, and do we, um, are we, are we conscious of, um, you know, hotspots? Um, uh, yes, um, we are. We watch them very carefully. Um, do I have a story in the works on Syria right now? No, I do not. Um, you know, but I also think it's really important for us as members of the travel media to also be encouraging of, um, you know, encouraging of travel, frankly, and encouraging of travel to places that in fact are totally fine. Um, you know, 
that was why I wrote what I wrote after Brussels about um, why I think it's important for people to keep going to places like Brussels and Paris and Istanbul. Um, you know, it's not going to be the right choice for everyone, obviously, and that is a totally a personal decision. But I think, um, I think for someone like me, who's a serious traveler and who understands how important travel is to the economies of these places, um, you know, we have a role to play in um, in supporting them. I take that very seriously. The day that the Brussels attacks happened, we had a newsletter planned. And Gerilyn and I looked at each other and said, we can't do it. Um, we're not going to send out a newsletter about, you know, shiny, happy Austin, Texas restaurant openings. Um, the tone just felt wrong because the time that the newsletter would have been in everybody's inbox, 11 a.m., the world was reeling from this. Now, on the other hand, every time something happens in the world and brands go to their social media with messages of our hearts go out to so-and-so, I think really cookie brand, your hearts go out. It just seems so false and it's such a hollow note, right? So we're very, very careful about when as a company, we decide that we want to make some public statement about a news event. We are not a news company. We are not a newsroom. We are people who are engaged with the world and who are actively watching these things. But editorially, that's not Fathom's mission. So we tend to tread very carefully and we do, and anytime that we do a time-driven social media post or um, article about how to donate after a natural disaster or something like that. It's with great thought and with great care because we are global citizens and because our fundamental mandate is to get you out into the world, everywhere in the world. Um, going back to the morning of the Brussels attacks, we, we have a section on the Fathom website called I Travel for the Good. I travel for the dot, dot, dot is a huge key message about Fathom because everybody has a different personal motivation for traveling. And so we built Fathom around this pillar, these pillars. And so we kind of ripped apart what had been planned for that day based on the news stories that had gone up that week. And we just wrote a message that was sort of heartfelt and earnest that said, you know, when horrible things happen all over the world... Your instinct may be to shut down and stay home, but we actually believe that travel is a force of good. And so instead, that newsletter highlight some of the better I travel for the good stories about people who went to teach in a village in Kenya or wherever they went all over the world. And we focused on that kind of story. We were, however, very careful to mention in that little editor's letter that Gerilyn and I sent was that it's not only the places that get a lot of attention like Brussels, but there are plenty of conflicts all over the world that don't get quite as much attention, maybe because the people don't, because the, because the media isn't looking at it. And so we said, you know, these things that captivate the media as well as those that don't and go very underreported, like we are, I don't want to say we're with you in spirit because then again, that's another false note, but we are aware, um, and we are thoughtful about this. Um, I did do a story on Syria last year. And um, one of the things that I've, I've sort of struggled with how to write about the fact that going to Syria was one of the best things I've ever done. And, um, you know, striking that tone of, you know, Syria will come back because the march of time just mandates that it will. It will never come back the same way. Something will come back. And in the meantime, um, it was just a Valentine to a place that had meant a great deal to me that I was very sorry everybody else can't 
go and experience. I was much more eloquent about it in the story, but, <laughs> but, 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 it, but I do want to say that it was a struggle to think about how can we be sensitive to very real struggles that people are not looking to us to figure out and solve. Um, but Tra you know, we're traveling within a context. We're traveling within a world. And then two of the more successful stories we ever did, controversial and successful, one was written by a friend of mine who said, go to Egypt now. Egypt was in bad shape. He's like, get on the Nile, go. I brought my three-year-old kids. People well, got very angry about that. You know what? He went. He's a responsible parent. He went. He had a great time. His kids had a great time. The pyramids were empty. So... And then, you know, after a natural disaster hits a beautiful place, go. The prices are lower, one. But two, those people need you now. And it's still really beautiful. So we're a big believer, not in sort of charging first into the fire, but just because a place is in trouble doesn't mean you shouldn't be going. So if there's one message that Fathom does try to communicate, it's that. Um, but we also try to do it in a sensitive and thoughtful way as good global citizens who... Um, want to engage with the world in a really positive way. Those are interesting perspectives. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you for I really here. appreciate it. This Thank was you fun. so much for having us.